Thanks, band. Good morning uh, again. Uh, welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, like Chris uh, said, we are glad uh, that you are here this morning, that you chose to join us. Uh, first thing I want to do this morning is, is introduce you to someone uh, really important in my life, uh, my father. And so there's a picture of him up here. He's on the, the far left there. There's me and uh, my family. We dedicated to my, my daughter Esther there, but that's my father uh, on the left. His name is Tim, and I get a lot from my father. The ability to grow a beard, the love uh, for knowledge and Star Wars, as well as a, as a deep faith. But also, I get some less desirable traits from him as well, something uh, that he likes to call being vertically challenged. Uh, we also both have bad backs, and we also have an utter foolishness for every single year optimistically thinking the Vikings won't break our hearts. But the point I, I'm trying to make here is that I resemble my father. I look like my father. I, I act like my father in many ways. We're, we're quite similar people. There is resemblance. And we've been seeing this idea of resemblance or, or repetition uh, throughout the book of Genesis uh, so far. So if you're brand new today or if you're just visiting, we're, we're in a series in the book of Genesis, the, the first book of the Bible, if you don't know, the Bible is, is broken up into 60, 66 different books that are compiled together. Genesis is the very beginning, and so uh, the, even the word Genesis means beginning, and so we're starting at the beginning of creation, the beginning of history, and we've kind of moved through that. We've uh, spent most of our time looking at this, this one guy named Abraham, so from chapter 12, today we're going to be in chapter 26, so for the past 20, or 13, 14 chapters, We've been focusing on this one man, this guy named uh, Abraham. But today is going to be the, the protagonist, the main character of our story, is going to be Isaac, Abraham's son. And today we're going to see how he resembles his father, both for the good and for the bad. We're going to see lots of themes and, and actions and, and problems come up that we've seen uh, throughout Genesis so far. We're going to be reading this story and you're going to say, didn't we already go through that passage? Didn't we already see that before? And so we're going to see Isaac resemble his father for good and for bad. And, and we're just going to see this, this uh, biblical imagery of repetition happen again in our story. So today we're going to read uh, most of Genesis 26. We're going to leave the last two verses for next week. They kind of go better with uh, Genesis 27. And today's sermon is going to be entitled Isaac and Abimelech, this, this foreign king that Abraham's son Isaac deals with today. So to, like I said, today's passage uh, is no longer focused on Abraham, and so it, it, we begin without Abraham. And if you've been here for the past few months, you've seen that God picks this guy Abraham, this guy who's in a far-off land, he's worshiping foreign false gods, and God picks him and says, leave your home and come with me, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a covenant with you. I'm going to make a promise to you that I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you many, many, many offspring that's going to turn into a great nation. I'm going to give you a land, and through you, through your offspring, all the nations of the world, all the families of the world are going to be blessed. But the beginning of our story today in Genesis 26, Abraham's gone. Abraham has passed away, and so as readers, we should be thinking, well, what's going to happen now? So for the past few months, we've spent time looking at Abraham and the covenant God made with Abraham, and today we start off by seeing that Abraham's no longer there. And so, wondering about this covenant, this promise God made to Abraham and his family, what, what's going to happen? Is it going to continue with Isaac? 
what is going to go on. And we're going to see today the very first uh, part of this verse, or the very first part of verse 1, it says that there's a famine. Again, more repetition. We've seen early in Genesis, there's been famine, and famine uh, affects people, obviously, and, and we're going to see that uh, just like his father, Isaac is going to resemble his father in this way, through a famine, he's going to leave the land. So God, part of the covenant, part of the promise is, I'm going to give you a land, and we're going to see that this famine is, is a, this circumstance brings about a big problem, a big challenge, right? Because it, it's threatening to get God's people out of the land that God has promised him. So throughout our story, throughout Genesis 26 today, we're going to see circumstances and people threaten this promise, this promise that God's going to build a great nation through Abraham and his descendants, that they're going to uh, be a blessing to the nations, that they're going to have a land but spoiler alert, we're going to see that even though people mess this up again and again, even though circumstances seem to come against God's promise, we're going to see that God will once again step in and save the day. That he will be faithful all the way through the end with this covenant promise that he gave Abraham and his family. So uh, if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Genesis 26. There's a few Bibles in front of you that you can, you can grab, or all this is going to also be... A, up there on the screen. And like Chris said last week, now in Genesis, we're, we're preaching through a whole chapter or even more. And so we don't have space to put it all in our worship folders anymore. So there's a few verses in there in that handout we gave you, but most of it's going to be on the screen. All right, so let's start in Genesis uh, 26, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. So right off the bat, we see that there's a problem, right? So if, if you're a family that has lots of herds and animals and, and you're nomadic, a famine is a big deal, right? And so if, if your whole livelihood is based on your animals, your flocks, your herds, uh, having water as well as eating vegetation, if there's a famine, there's a big problem. And so just like it happened with Abraham, and it's even referenced here, it's a different famine, not, not the one Isaac's father had. But there's a different one. This, this famine comes in and, and creates a problem. It, it threatens the, the promise, the covenant that God's people will be in the land that he gives him. And this guy Abimelech, we'll talk about him in just a little bit, but if you've been around uh, Abimelech, this character, this king of the Philistines has come up uh, num a number of times previously in Genesis. But we'll talk more about him in just a little bit. Verse 2, And the Lord appeared to him, appeared to Isaac, and he said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. So right off the bat, there's a big problem, and God steps in, and he says, Isaac, don't leave the land. Don't go off to Egypt. Instead, stay in this land, that, or go to this place that I'm going to tell you to go, where you will be provided for, you will be taken care of, because I know that going to Egypt is going to be a big problem for, for you and your family, because it was a big problem for your father. We'll talk about this in just a little bit. But his father, Abraham, had the same problem. There's a famine. He left and he went to Egypt. He left the land and he went to a foreign country and lots of bad stuff happened. We'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But God steps in and says, don't go to Egypt. Verse 3, instead, God tells him, to sojourn in this land and I will be with you and I will bless you. For you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oaths that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. 
So right away we see an answer to the, to the question that we have, what's going to happen to the promise? What's going to happen to the covenant? We see God step in and say, okay, there's this big problem threatening my covenant people, and I'm going to tell you where to go so that you won't starve, so that you will find vegetation and water. Don't go to this land, Egypt, but I'll give you a different one instead. And then God steps in and, and he reiterates the same covenant that he gave to Abraham. He says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to make you a great nation, which essentially means you're not going to die. And you're going to have lots and lots and lots of kids so that you become a great nation. And he says, and through you, through your offspring, and we know that this ultimately happens in Jesus, but we see it play out in the story as well. Through you, other nations, other families, other tribes are going to be blessed. So remember that because that comes up later in our passage too. Verse 5. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. All right, so if you've been around uh, Hiawatha for a little bit as we've been going through the story of Abraham the past 13 chapters, after you just heard verse 5 read, you're probably thinking, really? Does the, does the author of Genesis remember what Abraham did in, in the previous chapters? What's going on here? Because I know this Abraham character, and I know that this way of describing him is, is not the way that I would have described him. So if you remember, maybe you haven't heard this before, but let me just tell you a few of the big uh, sins or, or follies that happened in Abraham's wife so far. So Abraham got the same covenant, the same promise that we just saw God give to Isaac, yet there was lots and lots of fear and mistrust in Abraham's life that led him, like was referenced earlier, led him to leave the land and actually to go into Egypt. And even though God just had told him, I'm going to protect you, I'm going to provide for you, you're going to become a great nation, you're going to bless other nations, instead of doing that or trusting in that promise, he was fearful and he mistrusted God. And so as they enter, uh, as they enter Egypt, he gets scared. And he says, oh, no, these people are going to kill me and take my wife because she's gorgeous. Even though God just said, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to make many offspring come out of you and your wife. And so he gets afraid, and he, he, he schemes and comes up with this lie. He says, okay, wife, just tell everyone that you are my sister instead. And this plan backfires, and Pharaoh takes uh, Abraham's wife, Sarah, to be his own wife. And then he pays Abraham a bunch of money. So Abraham gets rich off this, essentially trafficking his wife to Pharaoh. And through this whole ordeal, he's essentially doing everything he can to ruin the promise. He gives away his wife. He's not in the land. He's not being a blessing to other nations, but rather deceiving them. So we have that happen with Pharaoh. Just a little bit later on in the story, he, uh, so God's saying, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you many offspring. But the problem is Abraham's wife is barren. And so what Abraham does, he thinks it's a great idea. Hey, God, what I'm going to do, I'm going to sleep with my wife's servant, and then she's going to get pregnant, and I'm going to take that baby and bring it to you and say, God, look, we can finally have a great offspring. I can finally have a great offspring. You and I working together. Look what I did for you. And we see lots of problems come out of that as well. And then again, a third big problem in Abraham's life, he does the same thing that his son just did. He actually leaves the land, goes to the same king Abimelech, lies about his wife, calls her his sister, and he lets a foreign king, this Abimelech character we see again in today's passage, take his wife. 
So with all that said, maybe you remember that, maybe this is brand new to you today. With all that said, how can the author of Genesis write and describe Abraham like this? Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. First, to help us understand this, this first phrase, Abraham obeyed my voice, that, that exact phrase comes from uh, just a few chapters earlier in Genesis where Abraham obeyed God's voice. It says that exact same phrase. And so as we read uh, verse 5, Abraham obeyed my voice. We, we should be thinking, where else do I see this? And it happened just a little bit earlier in Genesis, kind of after all these uh, big, big problems in Abraham's life. Abraham takes, uh, obeys God, and he takes Isaac to the mountain to be sacrificed. So after these huge mistakes and acts of, of folly and rebellion and sin in Abraham's life, he has this great act of faith where he trusts God, He trusts God's power. The New Testament even says that Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. And he trusts in God's plan. He knows that this promise is going to come through Isaac. And so he trusts that what God is going to do, he doesn't really know what God's going to do, but he knows that this plan will, God's plan will still, will still happen. So that's what's going on with that first phrase. Abraham obeyed my voice. But then what about the rest? Kept my charges, my commandments, my statutes, my laws. Doesn't really seem to describe this character that we've been reading about the past a few months. So a couple ideas. We're not, it's kind of a, a, a tougher phrase. Uh, commentators kind of disagree on what exactly is meant by here. A couple ideas could be is that uh, this first phrase, Abraham obeyed my voice, is then kind of flushed out or, or, or said in, in different ways. So maybe kind of in like a parenthetical Abraham obeying God's voice, what, what it really meant or practically what it looked like is that God kept his, or that Abraham kept God's charges, his commandments, his statutes, and his laws. It could be that. Or similarly, it could also be that, uh, so the first people that are reading the book of Genesis are, the, are uh, uh, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. And they have God's law. They have God's commandments. And so it could be the author is saying, this is what Abraham did. He obeyed God's voice. And for you who live hundreds of years later, this, this is just uh, another phrase that will help you understand what this means. Because you have the law. And so, essentially, when Abraham was obeying God's voice, this is what he was doing. He was keeping his charges, God's commandments, his statutes, and his laws. So it might, might also be that. But we, what we do know, what we can be certain on is, is this does not mean that Abraham was perfect. Nor is it condoning all of the sins and brokenness and rebellion of this man. The story shows in great detail Abraham's sin as well as the consequences of those sins. So Genesis is not trying to say, when we describe him like this, that he was a perfect guy. That's not what's going on. So to help us understand what verse 5 means, uh, we look a little bit earlier on in Genesis when God initially makes this covenant with Abraham, or he kind of reiterates in in chapter 15. Verse 6 says, And he, speaking to Abraham, and he believed the Lord, and God counted it to him, to Abraham, as righteousness. So God is, uh, he comes to Abraham, he's telling him about the covenant that he's going to make with him. Abraham has doubts, and essentially what happens, I mean, not literally, but I think what God does, he kind of like puts his arm around Abraham, and he says, okay, I know what I'm saying sounds crazy. I know your wife is barren. I know this is all brand new to you. You have lots of fears and doubts come with me. And he kind of leads him out in the tent and into the night sky. Maybe you've been outside the city and looked at the night sky and are just mesmerized 
by the millions and millions of stars that you see. God does that to Abraham. He brings him out and he says, look at this sky. I'm going to give you as many offspring as there are stars in the sky. And the next verse after that is, is this verse. And he believed, Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him. God counted it to Abraham as righteousness. So that helps us understand what is going on in, in today's passage, especially in uh, verse 5. So Abraham was righteous not because he was a great person, not because he was without sin, but rather verse or chapter uh, 15 says he was righteous because he believed in God, because he trusted God Almighty. It says God counted Abraham's faith as what made him righteous. God gave Abraham his righteousness because he believed. The righteousness was outside of him. It doesn't say God believed or Abraham believed God because Abraham was a righteous guy, but it says because he believed God, God counted it to Abraham, that belief, that trust in him. He counted that as righteousness. The righteousness was outside of Abraham. It was a gift to him. It was grace. In fact, this same verse is quoted many, many times throughout the New Testament. It's quoted to remind Christians, to remind us, to remind churches that, hey, this is how we get our righteousness. Not through uh, following the law, not through uh, being really pious, uh, moral people, not through making sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, but rather through faith. And that's good news, right? That's the gospel. That we can be made righteous, or fill in other words, similar words, that we can be made righteous, we can be made holy, we can be made pure or innocent or blameless or clean, not through our good deeds or our piety or our sacrifice or our generosity or our service to God, but rather through belief in Jesus Christ. So listen to Ephesians. So book in the New Testament, writing to church with the same idea. Listen to what it says to Christians. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The same idea. So Abraham was righteous because of his faith. Now, church, you are righteous because of your faith. You are blameless. You are holy because of your faith. 1 Thessalonians uh, 5 says something similar. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Sanctify just means to, to be made holy, to be made pure, more like Christ. Now may the God of peace him, himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So when we, when, when, when we look here, at this passage, this first Thessalonian passage, just like we saw in Genesis 15, who is doing the sanctifying? Who is making a human righteous or holy or blameless without blame? It's God, right? It says he is the one who is sanctifying. He is the one that is purifying us or making us holy. He is the one that is making us blameless. And it ends with this line, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. So just like the God that covenants with Abraham, and we're going to see his faithfulness throughout this story today. We're going to see humanity rebel and do stupid stuff and try to blow this great promise God has given him, and God is faithful. Similarly, in the New Testament, in, in, in our age now, God is faithful. He is the one 
that is going to do it. Our, our blamelessness, our righteousness, our holiness, God's the one that is doing it, and he is the one that is faithful, and he's the one that's going to do it. Martin Luther, the great uh, Protestant reformer, talks about this. He calls it the great exchange, whereas we give Christ our unrighteousness, and he gives us he gives us his righteousness. We become righteous. We become holy, not because we're perfect people, but because of our trust in Christ and that's imputed, that's given to us. So just as Abraham was described as, as righteous because of his faith, we too are righteous, pure, and holy only through faith in Jesus Christ. Some of you today, that's a big encouragement because you see both great characters in the Bible as well as really horrible characters in the Bible. Maybe you identify with one or the other, or both at the same time. And maybe you say when you see a great act of faith, man, I could, I could never do that. Oh, I could never do that. Or I could never be like, like this person. This gives us great encouragement to know that it's not about us. It's not Abraham was a great person because he had such great acts of faith. Try to do it. Try to be just like him. But rather we see that it comes, comes through faith alone. It's gift, it's gifted, it's given. And all of, also New Testament, all of Romans 4 makes this great connection for us. So it's, again, written to the church, looking back at Genesis. And it makes this, this great connection, reminding us that Abraham's story is not just written for Abraham and, and his descendants and the nation of Israel, but that his story is written for us. It's written for Christians. It's written for the church. And it's actually our story as well. So Romans 4 talks all about this, especially uh, verses 20 through 25. It says, Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But these words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but also for ours. But also for ours, Hiawatha Church. It will, be counted to, uh, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was also delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So the author of Romans is saying, church, listen to this. Go back and read about Genesis, or in Genesis about Abraham and his faith. That's for us. It's the same thing. Just as it was counted to him as righteousness, Abraham became righteous or pure, is standing before God, he was able to, to, to draw near to God because of his faith. It's the same thing for us. Trust, trust in Christ's death on the cross in our place gives us our righteousness. All right, back to our passage. Verse 7, we're going to now talk more about uh, Isaac here. Sorry, verse 6. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of this place asked about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, my wife, thinking lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. So like father, like son, right? We see resemblance again in a very, a very bad way here. So just like Abraham did the exact same thing with the foreign king, with, with Pharaoh, and even with the same king, Abimelech, we see his son do the same thing. He, he looks out for his own skin only. He abandons his wife fears for his life and does the same thing that his father has done before him. 
We've seen and we've talked a lot about the re- resemblance in Genesis so far. We've talked about it today. So parents, you know, kind of as a side note, just take this responsibility. Know that your kids look up to you. For good or for bad, they want to follow you. They want to do what you're doing. Or maybe they don't, but they just end up doing it because they are your kids. So take that responsibility. Know that the way that you talk about other people, the, the way that you talk about church, the way you interact with others and with them, they're, they're seeing that and they're going to more than likely follow that. So don't be paralyzed by this fear that, oh man, I can totally ruin my kids or, or I, I'm not, I don't know the Bible very well. You know, my kids don't have a chance. So don't be paralyzed by this, but rather be encouraged. God's gifted you. If you're a parent here today, God's gifted you with one of his children. He's given you one of his children for 18, 20 years that you get to, to raise up and to train and to spend time with. And he, and he has given them to you because he wants uh, them to better know who he is. And he's done that by giving, giving them to you and giving you the same name. Just as he is called a father, he calls you parent. So be, be encouraged by that and just see as we see resemblance and this happen again and again and again that it's also true today. We see Isaac do the exact same foolish thing as his father. Verse 8, so when, when he, when Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of the window and saw Isaac laughing with his wife, Rebekah. So this, this ruse, this lie, kind of works for a while, right? So uh, Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, live in the land. People think that uh, Rebekah is just his sister. And then suddenly, one day, I don't know why, but so you see the king kind of peeking his head out a window and he sees Abraham, or, uh, Isaac and Rebekah laughing. We don't really know what's going on here, whether it's this, this is kind of a euphemism for doing some type of uh, sexual or, or intimate action, or if it's, you know, they're just laughing in a way that's very, uh, you know, giggly or whatever. But the next verse tells us uh, what is going on. The Abimelech sees them giggling, sees them laughing together, and knows that he has been lied to again. Next verse 9, so Abimelech called Isaac, and he said, Behold, she is your wife. How could you say to me, she is my sister? Isaac says to him, "Uh, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. And Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife, shall surely be put to death. So there's a great turn of events here, right? The, the protagonist, the guy that's supposed to be the good guy is actually the bad guy. He's actually bringing cursing against this, this nation or this king or uh, rather than, remember, he's supposed to be bringing blessing to the nation. And Abimelech, this foreign king that doesn't worship God is actually kind of shows up and he's the good guy or he, he does the right thing. He says, oh man, like I... First of all, what you did and lying and deceiving is wrong. Secondly, one of my people could have taken her as a wife and, and then we would be guilty and we would be in the wrong. Here we're going to see that even when Isaac is unfaithful, even when he does these stupid things, even when he rejects God or, or lives in fear, God is faithful. Even when Isaac acts out of self-interest, God remains true to his promise. And we're going to see Isaac is blessed, again, not because he's a good person, just like Abraham was blessed 
Not because he was a good person, but because God is faithful. Because God is choosing to work out his plan of salvation and redemption through this family. Now we're going to see God choosing to bless him, even though we just saw his folly and his sin. Verse 12. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled the earth, uh, filled with earth all the wells that his father's uh, servant had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given him. Okay, so just remember that uh, they're, they're a nomadic people, and so wells are just super important, right? So you, if you're going through the desert or through you know, the wilderness or whatever, and you are grazing, you have lots of herds and stuff, you really need uh, these wells. These wells are, are very important to you. So as they move to a new land, they have to dig up a new well to make sure that they do have water, and that's going to continue to come up in our story here. Verse 19, But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also. So he called his name uh, Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant, my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servant dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with uh, Huzath, the, his advisor, and Philcol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank, and in the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they, de they departed from him in peace. So we see Isaac moves from, at the beginning of the chapter, bringing curses to other nations and to other people, to now being used by God to bring about blessing, to show off generosity as he, as he throws this great feast for Abimelech. And shows the relationship uh, and, and kindness as he makes an oath with them, saying, we will not attack you. We're greater than you. We're more powerful than you. We're richer than you. But we are going to bring peace between our two nations. Verse 32. That same day Isaac's servant came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, we have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba 
to this day. So we started this chapter wondering what's, what's going to happen to this covenant, to this promise that's made to Abraham. And at the end of our chapter, we see that the covenant continues through his son. Both God reiterates it again and a number of times here in Genesis 26. We see Isaac make an oath with Abimelech saying that he won't attack him. Which with, if you're a nomadic people and you have to have, you know, you have to move around a lot, you have to have a well and water and things like that. For him to make an oath with Abimelech saying, I won't attack you, we see a great act of trust in God. So Isaac is essentially finally beginning now to believe the covenant that God has given with him, that he will make him a great nation. He will protect him and make them grow and give them a land because he's saying, hey, by doing this oath, I could actually be putting myself in a bad position because we're, we're powerful enough, wealthy enough to go and take Abimelech's stuff if we need to, if there is another famine. But we see at the end of our passage today, it kind of comes full circle when we see Isaac finally trusting God, finally having faith that God will provide for them, that he will protect them, and make them into a great nation. So the last thing I want us to look at today uh, is that we see in, in Genesis 26, we see God kind of do three main things with people. We see that God saves, he blesses, and he uses. But he, he does all three of those things to imperfect people. Again, we saw all of our characters today. Actually, the best morally character is probably this, this foreign king Abimelech. But we saw all of our characters just be broken, be, be flawed, be imperfect people. Yet we see God throughout Genesis 26 save them, bless them, and then even use them. Use them to bring about blessing to others. Use them to bring about his kingdom or, or show off his, his character of generosity and peace and kindness. So some of us, we, we see this. And our first gut reaction is it's frustrating, right? We talked about this at our, at our community group uh, last week or a few weeks ago when we see God just forgive Abraham and still choose to use him and work through him. And, and a, a number of us are like, if I'm just going to be honest, emotionally, this is really tough for me. Or if I was writing this story, I would not let Abraham be maybe forgiven, but I, I wouldn't continue to bless him. I wouldn't continue to use him as this agent of blessing to the whole world. I wouldn't continue to use him. That's not the way I would do it. And so let's just acknowledge that for, for a lot of us, this is tough. When we read, you know, Genesis or other parts of the Bible and we see God use messy, imperfect, rebellious, sinful people, we don't like it. It doesn't seem fair, right? It, it doesn't seem just that God would use uh, Abraham and Isaac instead of using Abimelech, the guy that stood up and said, hey, I, people should not take someone else's wife. That's sinful. That's wrong. But instead, God doesn't use Abimelech. He continues to use Abraham, Isaac, Sarah, Rebecca, and others. So it is frustrating. It is frustrating. Yet, at the same time, what does it show? What does it demonstrate? It shows off the gospel. It shows off that salvation comes by faith, not by works. We're saved not because we're great people, but we're saved through faith. The Gospel Transformation Bible writes about this particular story and kind of this emotional response we have to it when we see a horrible man be used by God, be blessed by God, be forgiven by God. They write, Once more, we see that it is through weak, even cowardly men that God works out his redemptive purposes in the world. Putting his own well-being before that of his wife, as his father had before him, Isaac capitulate, 
capitulates to fear and lies about Rebecca's identity. Yet this is the great patriarch through whom God is keeping his promises to redeem the world. Horrible person, coward, yet God chooses to use this guy to bring about his salvation and redemption to the world. This is amazing grace to Isaac and to us. Isaac experienced this great grace and forgiveness, and it is for us too. Again, God didn't use Abimelech. God didn't use the righteous, the moral, God didn't use the moral person that was making all the right decisions, but God chooses to use a broken, messed up person like Isaac. Porterbrook has a great quote about this in, in, in light of the Christian life. They say, that is the paradox of Christian ministry. Or you could say Christian life or Christian discipleship, whatever. A wonderful, glorious message through ordinary, plain, weak messengers. If it were any other way, it would confuse the message. If my power and abilities could be compared with the gospel, then people might look to me instead of the gospel, or instead of looking to God. Or if people found me impressive, they might think that being a Christian was about being successful. But if I am weak and faltering, just like Isaac, then the focus will be where it belongs, on the power of God. Through the cross, Jesus brought life to others, and Christian discipleship or Christian ministry, Christian life mirrors this. So if this church was full of really, success, really successful, really great, really brilliant, really moral people, what would that say to the world that's watching? It would say that only those people get close to God. Only those people get blessed and saved and are used by him. But when we gather together as, as a group of messy people, broken people, imperfect people, what does it show the world? It shows the world that it's not about us. It's about God using imperfect people, showing this glorious message, just like it did in Genesis 26. It does now here in the church. So God saves, blesses, and uses imperfect people, and that gives us hope. Whether you feel today like you're more like a Rebecca, maybe you resonate more with her story, Maybe in your life or even right now, you feel abandoned, you feel unprotected. Maybe you've been deserted or betrayed or humiliated or harmfully used by another person. Maybe you kind of resonate more with her story. Resembles Jesus, right? As I, as I described her, sounds a lot like Jesus in his life, right? But it gives hope for people like that. It doesn't matter if you're broken, if, if you've been hurt really bad, if you've been used and abused God still saves, blesses, and uses those type of people. God chose to use Rebecca to be one, one of the mothers of the nation of Israel and one of the, the ancestors of Jesus Christ. He chose to use Rebecca as someone he was going to use to bring blessing to the entire world, ultimately through the gospel. Or maybe you feel more like Isaac. Maybe you're just uh, led by fear your entire life. Maybe you're foolish. Maybe you're manipulative a liar, or someone who has great doubt or who's very untrusting. Most of us probably won't raise our hand to say that, they're, that uh, we are Isaac, right? But in our hearts, many of us feel like that more than Rebecca. But our story tells us again today that God saves, forgives, he blesses, and he even uses horrible, sinful, foolish, untrusting people like, I, like Isaac as well. In the New Testament, Paul tells the church kind of something similar. He says, y'all are really not that great. 
You're not the smartest people. You're not the most successful people. You're not the most beautiful people. You're not the most influential people. He does it through a letter, right? He doesn't do it face-to-face. He kind of writes it through a letter. But, but listen to what he says. He writes to a, 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 the church in Corinth. He says, Church, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that, God chooses to work this way, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, that, no one, that the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So Christians share about their weakness. They share about their brokenness, about their imperfections, about their problems, about their sin, about their foolishness, because it's not about us. When we share our weakness, our brokenness, our imperfection, it shows the world and ourselves and each other that it's not about us, that it's really about God. The gospel creates this even playing field where when, when you're around someone, another person who has more sin in their life or who is uh, not doing as well. We don't look at them and judge them. We, we don't look down on them and, and think very prideful thoughts and arrogant thoughts about me being better than them, but we see ourselves in them, right? We know our hearts, whether we've done that sin that they're struggling with or whether we just know our hearts and we know apart from God's grace and his spirit in our lives, we would be in that same spot or, or another sin and, and be just, in deep in, just as deep in that. Or maybe we're around someone who's doing better than us, Maybe they have overcome great sin or they're just very mature. Their trust in God is, is doing really well. We don't look at them with contempt or a jealousy and wish that we had that or, or, or be unhappy for them. But rather, when we look at them, it's a worshipful thing. We thank God that he's doing that in someone else's life. So a couple things as we leave here today. Things we saw from Genesis 26 that can be applied to our lives here as Christians. First thing is to obey God's voice. So just as Abraham was commended for obeying God's voice, we can do that as well. And how do we obey God's, God's voice? Ultimately, we do it by believing in his son and receiving righteousness, not through works, but through faith. In John 6, Jesus told his disciples, he said, this is the only work God wants from you. You want to obey God? You want to obey his voice? This is the only work God wants from you. It's from Jesus' mouth. What does he say? What does he say? Believe in the one whom he has sent. Believe in the one that he has sent. Believe in his son, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And secondly, have hope. Have hope whether you're an Isaac or a Rebecca. Have hope in Whatever your brokenness or your imperfection is, whether it's great sin or whether it's great sin done against you, have hope in that. Hope that you can be saved, that there is uh, forgiveness of sin, there is reconciliation to our God through Jesus Christ. Hope that you can also be blessed, just like our characters in our story were blessed today too. And finally, hope that you can too be used for God's redemption in this world. Whether you're a horrible sinner or whether you've had horrible sin done to you, 
or, or both, and most of us are probably both, right? God still can and will use us to bring his gospel to the world, to bring redemption to the world. Let us pray. God, we thank you for, in story form, how we see, God, that you uh, love your people greatly, that you uh, save and protect and forgive just, just really broken, messed up people just like us. God, that you look out for the broken, the, the, the Rebecca types that are used and betrayed and abandoned, and you also forgive and bless and save and use the people who are, who are full of fear and full of doubt and full of sin. So God, we thank you for that, that we don't have to be perfect, that we can boast in our weakness and our sin, and it just makes your message and your gospel even greater. Pray this in your saving, powerful name, Jesus. Amen. All right, we're going to move into a time of